BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. All right, you ready? Mm-hmm. Guys, welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. I'm Jeff Fader, and before we get into it with the return of my friend, my dear friend, Jesse Savage, <clears throat> let's take care of a little bit of business. What do you say? Number one is Broadback Ironworks. BroadbackIronworks.com, makers of the 2x72 grinder. It's a great grinder if you're trying to remove, remove material. If you're a knife maker, it's great. <clears throat> if you're a woodworker, metalworker, sculptor, metalworker, anything like that, the 2x72 grinder is great, and this is a really great package. And you can have them built. You can build them yourself. <clears throat> you can put them together yourself. The shipping is very reasonable. The attachments are great. It's very user-friendly. And even if you don't have a, if you have a 2x72 grinder and you, you're like, I don't need this chassis, go check out their attachments. Their attachments are very, very user-friendly, and they're constantly coming up with new things that will make your life easier. So if you go to broadbackironworks.com, put in the promo code, Knife Talk 200, you're going to get $200 off any of their grinder packages. And if you put in Knife Talk 100, you're going to get $100 off their sharpening system, surface belt grinder, and leather sewing machine. <clears throat> Definitely check out what's going on over Broadback. They're uh, going to be down at the Blade Show in Atlanta. I believe there's going to be in, um, in June, and I believe there's probably going to be some deals that to have then. But for sure, check out what they're doing over Broadback Ironworks. Uh, I have two of their machines, and they are my best machines of out without question i don't even think about it anymore um number two is even heat <clears throat> even heat's the manufacturer of the finest heat treat ovens available if you want to check out what's going on even heat go to evenheat-kiln.com and ps uh broadback ironworks is a distributor for for even heat so if you're looking for an even heat and you're looking at well, why don't you double up you get yourself a Broadback and an Even Heat. And I, I've been using my Even Heats forever. Um, I, Spence and the whole family, it's a small family in Michigan. They're really great people, and they have a great product. They're very user-friendly. They're, the, they're the, the highest level in the, in the community. And if you're a knife maker, tool maker, you're a, a ceramicist, anything that you need to heat to a specific temperature and hold at a specific temperature, on the money at a specific temperature, get yourself an Even Heat. Stop playing. Um, next is nordicedge.com. Not my bad. Nordicedge.com.au. They are a uh, company in Australia that supplies 
knife making supplies and blacksmithing supplies to you. If you're a seasoned vet, if a seasoned vet or a beginner, they have tongs, they have hammers, they have all sorts of uh, knife parts. They have handles, they have scales, they have steels. They have all this stuff you're going to need to get yourself squared away to start or to resupply. Um, definitely check out what they're doing. And if you don't want, if you if you really want to get some, you know, credit. The fact is, is they did a uh, file guide called the Big Mert with Mert Tansu. Mert Tansu is one of the best knife makers around. He's an awesome knife maker, culinary knife maker, good friend. He's been on the show. And they teamed up with Mert to, to build the Big Mert file guide. And it's an awesome file guide. And if you're in the United States and you want to see what's going on, you go to knifekits.com and um, they will get you uh, one of the Big Mert file guides. And if Nordic Edge is dealing with Mert, then they're serious business. Them and Sausage Man Forge, definitely go check out what's going on at um, nordicedge.com.au uh, and if you're also another place you're looking for supplies is maritime knife supply if you're uh, looking for knife making supplies belts abrasive steels kilns forges presses heat treating of examples anything else to get you uh, resupplied or started uh, get check out what's going on over at maritime knife supply they're in canada but they have figured out a way to make it uh, shipping easy um, uh, lawrence lake is constantly uh, figuring out ways in which to get you the best deals that you can uh and for sure check out what they're doing um if you get a uh a 10 pack of abrasive belts you're gonna get 10 percent off so that's definitely worth it and um i'm very appreciative of everything he's done he did a, a scholarship at the uh, new england school of metalwork which allowed some people to you know further their education and he's very involved in the knife making community the metalworking community so definitely support maritime knife supply.ca Next is Trojan Horse Forge, makers of the Stable Rail Knife Finishing Vice. There are amazing vices built in the heart of Texas, and it isn't just for your handles. They have plates that you mount, and you can hand sand your blades. They've figured out ways in which to make your life easier. The hand sanding is one of the most laborious parts of knife making, and they have figured out a deck system that attaches to the Stable Rail Knife Finishing Vices that makes your life easier. Go check out what's going on over there at TrojanHorseForge.com. And just to let you know, I had a nice conversation with them not too long ago, and they have more products coming out. They're sending me some stuff, and we're going to be talking about other things that Trojan Horse Forge has that will make your lives easier, including, I don't know, we're going to wait. But at the same time, it's very exciting, and, and, and I would highly suggest going checking out what they have. And there is a hot ticket item, those Trojan Horse uh, Stable Rail Knife Finishing Vices. So if you go to TrojanHorseForge.com, you can check out what they have. They also have payment plans available. So if you're worried about, like, you know, lumping out a lot of money and you don't want someone to see, get yourself one of them payment payment pet plans. <laughs> you, don't have to, you don't have to lump it all out at one time. But, however, anybody who has the Stable Rail Knife Finishing Vice, just like all the other sponsors I have, usually never, I've never heard of anyone regretting having a Broadback. I've never heard anyone regretting having an Even Heat. I've never heard of anyone regretting having a Stable Rail Knife Finishing Vice. The people who sponsor this show, I believe in. I have all their products, and I really, really, really like them. So go definitely check out what's going on over there. And in terms of really, really liking, you got to get yourself over to Baker Forge and Tool. That's bakerforge.com and get yourself some of that specialty exotic steel. Koi Baker has figured out how to make these beautiful, beautiful billets ready for you to work. And they have a core material, like a hardened steel, like a 80 CRV2 or 52100 or something like that. And then they have a shim layer of either copper or brass. And then it's jacketed with 
uh, powdered welded steel or aka Damascus and he will give you this razzle dazzle steel that you just can't it's going to be hard to make and there are people making it for sure but if you want to like take out a little bit of the work and give yourself some of that razzle dazzle go get yourself over to bakerforge.com and check out what they have uh i've gotten the rain the raindrop damascus the raindrop copper my it's got copper layer in it it is awesome and it's really easy to use including the fact that you don't even have to etch it before you know where your core is sometimes with these with these um with these specialty steels where there's jacketing, sometimes you need to kind of, it's hard to figure out where your core material is because there isn't a much of a transition. But when you're using this bronze mie or the copper mie, the copper mie sticks out. So you can tell while you're grinding, before you heat, before you heat treat, before you uh, etch, you can find out where you, where you are. And that is a really helpful. And if you're a stock removal guy, nothing wrong with it, guys. I'm not telling you, nothing wrong with it. I, I stock remove all the time. But it would be great to be able to add this to your arsenal because people people fucking notice when you put use some of that Baker Ford steel, they notice. And when your time for etching, when it's time for etching, you know what you do? You go to Baker Forge and you get some of their etching. You know, you etch a little bit, Jesse, don't you? Uh, I have in the past. Yeah. What absolutely. do you normally use when you're etching Damascus? Um, what the heck is the name of that? Ferrochloride, um, right? Yeah, ferrochloride. Have you? Do you know what Baker Forge uses? No. They're selling this product. It's a pre-mixed etchants. A lot of times etchants, like ferric, you can't go straight ferric. I tried straight ferric one time and it's a disaster. Right. You need to add water. Yeah, so you they do. Have, yeah. They, have a, they have this pre-mixed etchant. You want to, do you know what it's called? I have no idea. It's called, <laughs> it's called gator piss. Is it really? I'm, I'm not kidding. I'm it, not, it sounds super environmentally safe. I'm telling <laughs> yeah. you, man. I listen. I tell you what. This stuff. I the, I get messages from Koi. He loves these reads because he always laughs when I'm talking about getting yourself some gator piss. Here's the funny thing about Baker Forge. They make this exotic steel, and it is when when people bought the people who uh, the people who bought the Baker Forge steel knives from me are like high level dudes, really high level dudes, like high, highest of high level dudes. And they're, cause it's beautiful stuff. It's awesome stuff. And then he has, he makes this product called Gator Piss, which is a pre-mixed etchant. And he's going, people are going crazy for it. The funny thing is, is you can't tell your customers. There are certain things you shouldn't tell them. You can't charge them a pile for this beautiful knife, and it is going to be yeah. when you use the when you use the copper mascus, it you're you're going to be shocked. You're going to be stunned, but you just can't tell people that you're using a gator piss. But it works really, really well. People fucking freak out about the gator piss. The name is the name. He loves it. He ain't, she ain't budging either. No, nobody can tell him to change the name. He ain't good and doesn't even pay. He doesn't care. Nobody cares. If you don't have to tell people, like right now, I could have no clothes on right now. I don't need to tell you that. Same thing with the gator piss. Make the fucking knife and don't you tell them you're using gator piss. And if you're in Europe, guess what, guys? I got special news for you. If you go to DIYEurope.eu, they're a distributor of gator piss in Europe. I don't know how you get past the EU with selling gator piss. They, you got to jump through all sorts of hoops. So Gator Piss is now available in Europe through our partner DIY Europe. DIYEurope.eu. Baker Forge has been working with Matt Bickers for over the hurdles of shipping acid by setting up manufacturing and distribution of Gator Piss in the Netherlands. You can go get yourself some. They don't even know what an alligator is in Europe. 
They don't have alligators. They don't have gators in Europe. You can go to DIY Europe, order yourself a bottle uh, in a company based in Europe. And there's if you go to DIYEurope.eu, you can see the countries that are eligible to get yourself some of that gator piss. And if you're in Europe and you're worried that people, and you know what, if you're European, you could tell people you're using gator piss. They don't know about. They don't know what an alligator is in Europe. They don't have anything. They don't have gators in Europe, so don't worry about it. So get yourself some of that gator piss. Save ten percent if you put in full blast ten. Full Blast 10 gets you 10% off all that gator piss and specialty stuff. So definitely check out what's going on over at BakerForge.com. And if you're in the EU, guess what? You're in business. DIYEurope.eu, okay? And last but not least, I have to thank my friends at Total Boat, uh, TotalBoat.com, makers of paints, adhesives, primers, polishing compounds, for boaters and DIYers, they understand that you need, they need your products to go smoothly. That's why they're constantly finding ways to make their original products better, easier to use, and more sustainable and less expensive. They even tinker with the packaging from time to time to make it user-friendly. I, the, most people who use Total Boat are makers. They're making, um, you know, a lot of woodworkers are using Total Boat. I know Jimmy Teresta uses Total Boat. I know uh, Derek from Malden, Keith Johnson, Keith Mitchell. These are not specifically knife makers actually they're none of them are knife makers and frankly nor should they be knife makers with you don't mind me saying so i mean keith keith mitchell he he knows how to make a couple knives he was working with nick anger and making some uh beautiful knives besides i should have watch what i said but if you're going to get yourself some of that total boat try it on your knife scales i've been using total boat specifically for hidden tang knives and for full tang knives and i really really like the results it's mm. really great stuff and their pump their pump system doesn't give you so much that you can uh that you overdo it like you're not using so much that you know, one pump of each is, gives you enough for one set of, one knife, and it's great. And I definitely would highly suggest using the Total Boat. And if you put in uh, Full Blast 10 at, at um, TotalBoat.com, you're going to get 10% off all your orders. And I believe in it. I, I've been using it now. I've been using it a lot, and I really, really like it. I've been using hidden tang knives. I've been using full tang knives. And they have dyes specifically formulated for the uh two-part epoxy and it's really great stuff and if you go to totalboat.com put in the promo code full blast 10 get yourself 10 percent off and try it out um they have different sizings they have different um applications and they have awesome stuff so thank you once again total boat now all joking aside i appreciate my sponsors we got some new stuff coming down the pipe i'm very excited about and uh, i'm going to be talking about new sponsors coming on board pretty soon so we're going to talk about that in the future but right now i'm very very glad one of my good friends somebody who i really respect i admire i really enjoy talking to uh, jesse savage is here and jesse savage if you don't know you gotta know he's an awesome blacksmith he's also a, an instructor at the center for metal arts he's up in vermont the beautiful vermont jesse savage what's going on my buddy hey not much how you been um pretty good pretty good overall busy yeah. but you're getting uh, ready to go down to cma you're gonna teach yeah, you're gonna i am carry, you're um, class. yeah i actually today i'm going to the shop to kind of like practice and put stuff aside for it and always takes me like a week or so to like you know kind of put together everything I, I need to bring um not that i need to bring much but i just it's like having your own stuff uh makes it makes me more comfortable so um but it's uh yeah it's always a fun adventure 
Well, there. you and Carrie are teaching a. Uh, what's the class you guys are teaching? Uh, it's so sat. It's a Saturday class, um, which is just bottle openers, um, just like an intro to blacksmithing. Both are, and then Sunday is um, an intro to blacksmithing, and we teach fire pokers. And um, the Sunday thing is kind of cool because it's. Um, yeah, I've talked about it before, but it's um, we do like some you know, small forge welding. And, uh, usually we run the power hammers. Um, so it's a full kind of experience to kind of like introduction to blacksmithing. So that, that actually is a good class to take if you want to get into it and want to be, um, you know, exposed and become familiar with the tools. Um, you really see a lot of, uh, you know, that encompasses blacksmithing in that class, I feel like. So yeah, that's those, that's exciting. Those hammers, I got to run those hammers when I went down there. A yeah, I haven't ago. seen the new ones. They're amazing, and, and what I'm surprised about is he's got three new. I got four new An Yangs. Four new. Did he three, really? And they're, I think they're 177s. Is that right? Yeah, that, 178. Right? 178, something like that. I, you know what? I don't even know. I don't know any of the numbers. I, they changed all the sizes on all the machines. I don't, I don't have any like. Like, I have no, and you know what? It's my own fault, and it, but it's not even a fault. It's just like I don't fucking care, frankly. It's just like right. the numbers, it's a big, they're these big Anyangs. And when I got to the Center for Metal Arts last time, I set up the class, and I want to talk to you about, like, what you were saying in regards to uh, setting how long it takes you to get ready. And, and I think that there's something there. But he, you know, Pat, we're set up, and Pat says, you want to you try the hammers out? And I was just like, yeah. And I hadn't used a, power, a big power hammer like that in a long, long time, years. Mm-hmm. I was amazed at how light, the, the, how flexible it was in terms of the hitting the from really hard hitting to really, like, light hitting. I was amazed at how sensitive those Anyangs were. Yeah, they are with the right oil, for sure. Um, mine's really sensitive. Like, I can play it like an instrument you know it's yeah it's 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 pretty amazing the one nice thing about this like 178s is all the hammers below that are like basically like um two different pieces they're like a top casting and then they fabricate like a bottom steel base for them with those it's one huge piece of casting so um i feel like they're a little bit sturdier in a way well, it was, I mean, I'm amazed. I'm, it, was, it was fun using them, and I was totally amazed that uh, I was just, you know, I was at also talking about what you were saying, getting, getting ready. I think it's really, I think that's one of the things that is very similar to us. Because, like, when we started forging, when Pat says you want to use the power hammer, I hadn't used the power, I had my little tire hammer, but I hadn't used the right. power hammer to work big steel in a very long time. There's a lot different from using, like, a 50-pound tire hammer to oh, know, yeah. forge out forge out little things to, he and I were forging out, like, uh, you know, inch and a half, almost two-inch steel um, into with, you know, I just hadn't had any practice whatsoever. And it, and I got frustrated. I got frustrated because it was like, I hadn't, you know, I wasn't prepared and I wasn't, I hadn't done it before. And when you were saying it takes you a week, it takes me a week to get ready for the friction folder class, because I'm afraid I'm, I've gotten rusty if I haven't done it in a while. So right. before I do any, and even when we do any demos or when we work the modern forge guys, or if we do a hammer in, I'm sometimes I'm afraid that I'm so rusty. It takes me a week to forging to kind of like get the ring rust. I mean, it's like ring rust. It's like, Mm -hmm. it's like if you haven't done it in a while, 
there it isn't like riding a bike sometimes there are certain certain things that you know your hands aren't conditioned or maybe you've forgotten a tiny little step or you right. really it is something that you have to keep doing in order to be proficient yeah absolutely i had like um i don't i think it was like a month and a half ago mm, maybe a month ago and i had um was stamping like a hatchet that i had made right and uh it was wasn't paying attention exactly to where my hands are and uh, um i had like the the stamp with my name in it um directly underneath the hammer swing that was coming down and the the bar that well the set of tongs that hold the stamp kicked straight up into like the bottom of my hand which was on the sledgehammer and it like just completely shattered one of my fingernails Oh, to a no. point, yeah, like I lost the nail altogether, but there was like a moment there where I was worried about it with the class, but it's, it's pretty well healed now. But that's part but, of this whole thing that, it, that it's like you, you do, you can lose, you can lose. I mean, I, it is like my riding a bicycle because you can kind of get it back, but mm-hmm. if you're not kind of practicing all the time, there is this loss, there's a total loss. Like I was nervous using a power hammer only because like a big power hammer like that. I hadn't used it since, you know, Pat was back in New York. Right. I mean, they're all different too. Yeah, of course. But at the same time, it's that feeling of, you know, being used to it. Um, uh, one of the interesting things is I also think that, I mean, for me, working with Pat has, is, has been really a really amazing opportunity. And, my relationship with Pat and the Center for Mental Arts is very strange. I mean, it's strange mm-hmm. because I'm the only holdover. I'm the only holdover. When, you know, I left the Center for Mental Arts before uh, the Max, you know, Ed Mac had, was still alive and Ed and Rhoda Mac was still there and John was the lead. John Ledford mm-hmm. was the lead guy. Funny enough, John Ledford lives in a town next to me now and he's that he's no longer blacksmithing. He yeah, Really? Runs, he runs an animal shelter. Huh. He's he's uh, runs this, this animal shelter and he's incredible. He started, you know, he started, he worked, at, he left New York and uh, he went down to Alabama and he was, he was running a couple shops and he got sick of it. And he started working with, he was always a big animal guy. Right. And he started working with these rescues, like bird rescues and animal rescues. And he just got into it. And he was just like, this was for me. And now he he's an impact director for this really big New York dog rescue. So he's constant. So he lives not too far from this rescue. They're always having like dogs coming up that need to be, you know, sheltered. It's a no right. kill shelter. So they just like some of these dogs are like murderers. And it, yeah. he's, he's running this group of people that are doing and it's a big operation. And it's it's neat because he's been coming by the shop because maybe he needs to fabricate something. And I've given him the keys. And it's great to see him. Yeah, he was this. He was the lead guy, one of the best fabricators and blacksmiths I'd ever met. And um, when I left, after I left, I don't know what happened. And Ed had passed away, and Rhoda, I guess Rhoda contacted Pat, and then there was this kind of strange transition between Pat and John. So when Pat came to the Center for Mental Arts in New York, he, you know, he wanted to start from scratch. It was a different concept, you know. For he, for him, it wasn't about the fabrication of doing jobs; it was about the school. And I've always been the one to extend myself because I believed in what he's done. And our relationship has completely like changed in the sense of like, there's no reason for him to, to want to have a holdover. And I don't tell him this is the way we used to do. I don't do any of that. I just support him, support him in, 
And when you think about this, the, you know, the term, you, you hear these terms like uh, forging a relationship. Forging a relationship is funny because people think it's creating a relationship. Forging, a, forging steel isn't just creating steel. Forging is like manipulating the mass and changing it to make it something else. The relationship I've had with Pat, it has been that real concept of forging a relationship. It wasn't, there was nothing. And then mm-hmm. we had our, you know, ups and downs. And, and then now we've been, become very close. And it really is, Center for Mental Arts has, has become very special to me to the point where I made the decision and I told this to Pat, well, I won't teach blacksmithing or bladesmithing anywhere else. It's going to be Pat or nothing. Right. Know? That's you know? awesome. That's cool. Because, I mean, you know, I mean, you can't, yeah. I mean, you can't really, also, I mean, let's face it. I mean, you don't become a, you don't teach blacksmithing classes to make money. No, you know, it's like, no. It's that you don't. I mean, that is like a, that's just the way it is. I mean, I God bless these guys who like Nick Rossi and and Matt Matt Parkinson and guys and and who, who run around the country teaching classes. You're, these are greater good. People are doing it for the greater good. Yeah, they're not, obviously, they're not yeah. doing it for they're not doing it for um, for money because if because you know leaving your house and you know like you it takes you a week to get ready for the class. It took me a week to get ready for the class getting all the way down there you're doing it right and it, yeah it's two days of drive time and yeah it's uh it's definitely a sacrifice to go do it but like i you know i we're at the at the same time you know very honored to um be teachers at such an important school me too i mean it, it, here's the crazy thing is every time i'm down there he is single-handedly made huge growth in this in parts of the school like that is to me yeah. one of the most remarkable things because I mean Johnstown is so many buildings, and at the same time it's really he's a it's almost like a one man gang. I mean now he's got he's got a new guy coming in, um, and he has this wonderful new um, office manager who's fantastic. But it's really just Pat, and you know I guess he grabs guys when he needs to, and um, right they're they're but the this the. the the evolution, the the growth that he's done single-handedly is pretty remarkable. It is pretty amazing from when he left New York State, you know. It's, I mean, uh, yeah, it's a, it, it, the transformation's been amazing like, to be you, part of that. You physically see it. Like, you physically yeah. see, you physically see how he's, uh, we had a lot of nice times talking about, you know, the Center for Mental Arts and, like, the classes. I mean, he, number number two is, the, I mean, we, we, without doing any spoilers, the classes that he's got for in line for 2024, he got a murderer's row of of teachers. He does he? I'm sure he does. <laughs> yeah. I don't. I would love to say what he told me, but I, I don't. No, you know, yeah, yeah. I do that. Yeah. But like, trust me. Like these are names that these are household names in the in the blacksmithing and bladesmithing world, and they're pretty exciting. So um, I'm I'm always amazed, and I'm always amazed at how clean the shop is. And frankly, I just don't know how he does it. To be honest with you, I don't know how he does it. No, yeah, I definitely don't either. One of the things that I, I wanted to talk to you about was um, one of the most interesting parts. And this is something I touched upon with Pat, but I really kind of wanted to talk to you because, I mean, you and I have known each other probably as long as, I've probably known you longer than I've known Pat, but it's all based off of Instagram, social media. Right. And one of the most amazing things is one of the things, we talk about, you know, the good things, the bad things about Instagram or social media in general, but one of the most amazing things is when you look at artists, you have the ability to watch their growth over time. Yes. 
Yeah. And you get to see the evolution of their work from the early days all the way to, you know, current times. And that's like a luxury to a certain degree. You don't normally yeah. get to see Yeah, you know, see the one thing, like, oh, uh, there's been quite a few people, I'm not going to name names, but they've gone back and just purged their whole account. So it's all like where they are now. Right. And I was like, that kind of sucks because I like going back through and you can kind of see where people are evolving. But, but see, you're right. And it's it's because I mean that is really something that is really something special because for a creative person who makes creative decisions, you get to you know when you used to read used to read uh, when I took art history classes you would t talk about different artists different periods and you say mm -hmm. what would inspire them and then the, you know I'm not going to compare people to you know artists you know, famous artists and stuff like that but you get to see how they've changed and how they've evolved. Right. I mean, time. if you, if you see like early Picasso, you would, you Perfect. would go like, Oh my God, he's like a traditional painter. Like what's, you know, you wouldn't recognize it as his work that people know Picasso nowadays as. But the, but to be able to kind of have a real time witnessing of a catalog of a person's work mm -hmm. is a luxury that is like under, under, under appreciated. And for Pat is especially because you can kind of see where he came from. I mean, you can see how his work has changed and you can see how the places that he's been to have inspired how he works. You know, that is something that we were, he just kind of wanted to back off that a little bit only just because I think he's very humble and modest and stuff like that. But the fact is, is seeing his work from Carbondale to going to New York and yeah. then from New York down to Johnstown, he's made a, a, a incredible leap in terms of his work based off of the research and the history of going from New York to Johnstown. You know, even his tong, I mean, perfect example is his, the way he's changed the way he makes his tongs. Like his tongs are totally different and it's based off of the research that he's done coming to Johnstown, the historic Johnstown, where they're using tongs that were to hold very giant pieces. I mean, the, the, the hammers they have there are like, you can't imagine how big these goddamn things are. And he used the historic examples of what they were using to kind of inform how he was to make stuff. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I and, mean, I, I know like Pat's work from when he was, when he was in Vermont before he went to Carbondale and, um, different people he worked with and started out with, um, kind of it definitely need to see the full progression of you know where he where he came from and where he is now even now he's got a new uh hand hammer design that's based off of the john johnstown hammers that's like, awesome man and it's and it's such a departure from the hammers that he's known for which is you know they're the four that pulled out cheeks and then they're they're very you know it's a very uh the face is on the narrower side and it's very like classical crossbeam hammers he's kind of changed the way he's done his hammers based off of being in johnson and his work is different too one of the things that interests me is and this is something that um is part of this idea of of growth is you know his concept of like he has a concept in terms of research like he's really spent time and energy in regards to how he goes forward building and forging what he does one of the things we kind of touched upon last week, and this is something you and I have talked about a uh, number of years, probably a number of years ago. When he first got down to Johnstown, I remember you came back 
and you told me how big those hammers were in the octagon. What are, do you know the size of those air hammers? I keep forgetting. Well, the the main one he uses is a 3,000-pound Chambersburg, but I think the one that they just got running is 4,000. So these are, I mean, you, you it's not a one-person job. These are, no, these are hammers no. that are, you need a driver, you need an assistant, you need chain right. hoists, you need... And I remember saying to you, what are they going to do? Are you going to teach anvil classes? I mean, <laughs> I, know. I, remember, yeah. I think we even talked about this. this is at some point, you're going to teach how to make anvil classes. And we let it alone. I'll leave it alone. You know, and, and I'm, very, I'm very protective of Pat now because I know he's very protective of what he does too. Um, so we get down to the octagon last, last uh, when I was down there. And we're walking around, we're looking around. And, you know, those hammers are so goddamn big that anything in there looks tiny. Yeah, they're like 20 feet tall or whatever. They're so, everything's yeah. so goddamn big, small compared to them. All of a sudden I'm looking around and they have what they, what they call the, the anvils that they're using at the center, at CMA. Well, not the anvils they're using at CMA. The anvils that they were using at, at the Cambria Iron Company were called bridge anvils. And they were... Uh, forged anvil, but instead of there being a stump or a stand, there were two legs that were dovetailed, connected to the the face, the to the to the body, and they were kind of bolted into the ground, so they didn't move. In yeah, the they actually bolted them back back in the day. That was a dirt floor, so they bolted them to like a steel plate or riveted them so they're, that they just so they could move them around. I mean, they're amazing. So I'm looking around, and all of a sudden, I see on top of one of the bridge anvils a smaller anvil. Now, when I say a smaller anvil, I'm saying this thing is fucking big. It's like a 250-pound anvil right. that he had just forged. And I turned to him and I said, did you forge this goddamn hammer? And all of a sudden, I look around and there's another anvil that he forged. There was the beginning stages of him using these hammers for something. You know, these hammers are from what he told me. The hammers now, this size, would be used for the Department of Defense or giant hooks or giant chain. There's not a whole lot you can do. I mean, it's not like, it's not very user. I mean, you wouldn't make tongs with, with these hammer. I mean, there's, there's, it's not a whole lot you can do. So he made these, these, these animals. I'm talking to him and he's just smiling. And the, the, the co, I mean, he forged the whole thing. He forged the whole thing, including tapering the, the horn and everything like that. And it was right. choppy. He obviously needed to do some tooling to kind of, kind of refine the, the horn because obviously you're not going to grind all that away, all the choppiness of it. No, I mean, you get cold shots too. And stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's just no way. So he's, so when I saw, so I, I didn't take pictures of it because I felt like, and I talked to him about it and I turned to him and I said in front of everybody, I said, are you going to be teaching anvil classes? And he goes, oh, you know, by, I'll be honest with you, it's a very delicate subject. And we talked about it when he was on. He said he was, he was very, it was very amazing because I really, really started to think about how social media has changed how we uh, communicate information. And the idea that the things that you can learn, you can put up on Instagram, and then their people can kind of figure out how to do them. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So, like, I remember when he made that small anvil at, at uh, I even talked about it on the last episode. I just remember when he made that small anvil in New York, and he saw yeah. me over there. He turned to me, he said, it's right over there. He also showed me the smaller versions of the big anvils that he made. And he was very honest i think he i think the one thing about pat is i think there's an honesty about about him in regards to nowadays you know obviously it's going to be hard for someone to go out and make giant 
giant anvils like that but he but it's like so much time and energy has been spent in any everything yeah. that he's done never mind the materials i mean yeah it's, it's not cheap <laughs> it isn't cheap you know running those forges he's up at three o'clock in the morning to start the forges it takes him like four hours to get the steel up to temperature maybe even more than that it's a you know getting those anvils getting those hammers running was such a big production and then figuring out how he was going to forge forge 250 pound anvils how you gonna hold the material how you gonna and it, it was interesting was was there was a dilemma there was a dilemma that he has do i after spending all this time figuring out how to do this do i give the information out for it to be copied you know or how, what do what do you do you know well i i mean i think i think that's a long ways down the road what of he course. does to that information but. of course of course it's a long ways down the road and you could make the point that you could make the point that you know you're being you know somebody said to me well no one who's going to be who's going to be able to have hammers that big well it's not going to be too long before someone you know if you look at the way the maker community the blacksmithing community and the bladesmithing community have been growing there has been a feed there's been a need for information there's been a yearning for information there's also been a, um, spots of where people can make money feeding off of the <coughs> yearning of what we're doing you mm-hmm. know what i mean like i i make jokes all the time about i call it grinder wars all the grinders are coming up coming up every left and right and they're they're all you know they're all fighting to put grinders in people's shops you know right it's only a matter of time before and then you know hammer makers coming up left and right and tong makers coming up left and right and there's only a matter of time before you know a need is fed i mean there's not that many american anvil companies right now no i mean there's there's none that forge them like they're like there's quite there's quite a few like farrier type companies that cater to them but um in england you've got like that Vaughn Brooks or whatever. But um yeah, I mean it's I I guess is it is it needed? I think like it's a tough question because like the amount of labor that's gonna go into that piece is I think the people that Pat sells to are gonna be people that are are aren't necessarily buying it because they need an anvil. They're buying it because it's a it's a work of art from Pat Quinn. I don't necessarily, I mean, from what he's told me that there's no, there's no immediate, there's zero immediate uh, plans on him selling anvils. He yeah. just wants to get some anvils made and he wants it's to. It's a great exercise. It's I a, mean. it's, I mean, it, right at this point in time, and please let me, let me just, you know, completely be, this is an exclamation point. There are no plans for classes. There are no plans for him selling anvils or no plans of any of that. He's just trying to make them. He's trying to figure yeah. it out. And it's I gonna... think that's my like the one common thing that Pat and I clicked on like years ago when we first met was like anvils and the history of anvil anvil making and just in and there just being not that much information out there. Um, yeah. you know. I was actually driving down it was Pat came up, stayed with us, and we were driving down through um Pulteney, Vermont, and it was like a town wide sale. And uh, sure enough, I spot an anvil underneath this guy's bench, and Pat jumps out of my pickup truck while it's running. <laughs> really? <laughs> to run over to see it. So funny. But yeah, no, we've always been like, that's the one thing Pat and I have shared is like a, a passion for anvil. So it's not surprising that he's attempting to make what they were doing in Johnstown. You well, know? 
yeah, he's attempting to make the style of anvil that they're using. And then from what it sounds like, he wants to have his, he wants to have those anvils be the anvils, the shop anvils. Mm-hmm. And it is, it's just like everything about it seems very, very honest. And it seems very, very appropriate, appropriate to what he does and the, and it's appropriate to what he's always done. So that's part of the whole idea of watching this guy develop based off of the places that he's at, even his work, even his sculpture. And we don't have to talk about Pac-Man all the time, but at the same time, I think that I can't help, but I can't help, but really kind of, you know, express the sincerity of what's going on at CMA. And I can't express to you. I mean, I'm not a fucking sentimental guy. I, I'm constantly just like, you know, I'm a pretty much like, I could give a fuck. For everything, for the most part, I'm just like, take it or leave it. I can give a fuck. Right. But what he's doing is so important to the idea of what metal workers should be doing in regards to how to use power hammers. You know, the appropriate way to use um, to use strikers and using tools. And he's very, very conscious of how, uh, who comes down there and what they're doing and what they're bringing. Mm-hmm. About. I just... I just am so happy that you guys are are down there and doing that, and you know, I I, I don't know, I don't know. I'm turning into like a fucking, I'm turning into like a cult. I'm turning into a cult follower or something like that. Speaking of uh, sentimental stuff, I so I made I've been doing like I I can talk about it a little bit, but I I've been doing like different, like kind of elaborate like shepherd hood like plant hangers every year and like putting them putting them at like family cemeteries because I'm like so into the genealogy and stuff. And I, I planned on writing a book and like doing like, like the process of me making the piece and then a photograph of like the headstone with the story of the person. So there's like a short history on who it's about. And then, you know, different plant hangers with different, you know, black, black thing elements right. in them. Um, kind of a neat idea but so i put one down last year just like my local it was the first one i put like locally um at my grandmother's uh headstone and somebody stole it over the winter kidding me (laughs) no it's gone thank god i got a good picture of it so in theory i could but it's big right it's big i'm like who would like it was like the gate was locked to the place and everything over the winter and i like i had seen it in like december so i was like i don't know Somebody must have went in there after, and like, and it could have been like the maintenance for the. I tried talking to the maintenance people. Like, I called the church, and they're they use this outside company. Um, they're not sure, but they've contacted them. I told them I was like, "It's a signed piece." I mean, I, I I know it's just like a plant hanger, but it's you know elaborate enough where, um, I would think they would know it's it's not just something you would buy at Home Depot, you know. It's so fucking weird. People Isn't that are crazy? so fucking weird, dude. I know to steal it off of somebody's like headstone cemetery in it's, a cemetery. I, you saw, yeah. you took a picture of it. I know that I saw you. You had posted a picture of it, and, and yeah. it was this big. I mean, how tall was it? Like seven feet tall, probably. Feet? And it yeah. had, you know, and the, how could somebody fucking take something like that? Is just, well, I don't like, know. You couldn't put me. it in a car, you know. So it's like you you would have to have a truck to. And and even if there was like some sort of like. If the cemetery had, well, we have this policy in regards to certain things, and you would think that they would have had like a storage shed. They're like, yeah, this is up against our policy. We don't put these, yeah. in, you know. And then I did actually open up the storage shed because it, you know, nobody was there, and 
I went through it. <laughs> I didn't see anything That's, other than mower parts. I was like, so, can you, know? you imagine the fucking mentality of someone? And it's not like this elaborate plant hanger isn't like a television. Isn't like an object of just like this will this will. It's like this will be great in my garden. I mean, well, who just fucking steals? I don't a know. I mean, it, yeah, it, a would, it would stick out. You know. It's I, just like it's just the, yeah. the the idea of it is great. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, I want to say it's in kind of a bad area of town, but at the same point, who would? I mean, if it if they took it to the local steel scrapyard, they know my work and they would have known. You know. But I mean, what are you um, gonna get? For, I mean, how much to weigh? Twenty five pounds maximum? Probably. I yeah, mean, it's all gonna, it's all really big stock because I planned on like having stuff last. You know and. So oh, now, in regard, so, so has that changed your direction in terms of like decorating your family's graves now? It, it has a little bit in the sense that, I mean, there's been a couple bigger pieces that I've actually kind of um, like cemented in place. Um, but once you get into like making it something permanent, then you've got to like contact the cemetery and make sure that, you know, they're okay with you doing that. Would you ever consider bolting into the headstone? Like anti security, uh, I not can you well, imagine? It, I ha, we did do one somewhat replacement of a headstone because it was um so old. I think when you get into like people like my grandmother, I'd have to contact like so many relatives, and that's the case. I think, um, even with my father's um or his parents' cemetery, he like added a stone there and he had to have like written letters from like all his siblings oh my God. saying that they are okay with it. So when you, when you're that close in generations, they care when, when you ask about replacing or doing something to a headstone for the 1800s, no, nobody really cares to a point, you know what I mean? They're, um, I haven't had any problems with that. How hilarious would it be? If all of a sudden you're just like, well, this is my last chance to do this. I'm just going to start. I'm going to make like some, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to weld on some angles or I'm going to forge on some angles and, and I'm going to yeah. drill through the headstone and then I'm going to put these anti-theft bolts on. Yeah, so, yeah you could. You and could. then the hilarious part, you go through everything and you figure it all out and you got these old things and then all of a sudden you're drilling through and your fucking drill cracks the, the headstone. Oh, it could. <laughs> There's so many of the old ones in Vermont that are broken half. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I don't hate to make jokes, but I mean, they, that would be the story. It's just like you've gone through all this stuff. You got it. And all of a sudden you just like crack the headstone and yeah. I'm like oh my god all this for nothing it'd be easy to do a lot of them are bound back together with iron you huh. know they bolt them together like the 1700s like stones that are you know in vermont how did you find out that it was stolen did you just show up or somebody i just sh- i went because it's spring and i was like i i usually comb through all the cemeteries i'm a little bit obsessed with cemeteries but like it's you know we rolled through i've got like other family there um like great grandparents and great great grandparents and um so you know i can go into the cemetery and i have like a lot of connections and a lot of stones to go see actually how many many stones do you have to go to see like how many stones do you know in the top off the top of your head of that you go visit every year all the time like um my like great great grandfather there, uh, Lewis Savage, that was one of the twenty five guys that captured and killed John Wilkes Booth, Lincoln's assassin. Like I'm up there once a year to Vermontville. It's up by kind of Lake Placid, New York area. Huh. Um, my great great grandfather, like the Smiths, like with the quarry, I'm there 
we're there all like quite a bit because we go up to Barry. I go through the cemetery. It's the old Barry, like in town cemetery. It's not the big Hope Cemetery on the hill, um, but it's uh, yeah, all the names. I've got like great, 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 you know, grandparents there. Um, so, do you think you visit over twenty graves a year? Probably more than that. More than that, like more 30? than that. 50? Yeah, probably probably 50. Yeah, sure. Holy Jesus Christ. But like every weekend we go and um you know, just we do the rounds through different cemeteries and Can I ask you a, qu- a personal question? Are sure. you are you like OCD about I've never I see I've never Like I don't even I'm OCD know. OCD about the stories of people and um I don't know. You create the, you create these, like I've talked about it before, about like doing the, like the studying of the family history and stuff. And you find somebody, you find their story, you find like their, you know, their victories and their losses. And, um, you just get connected to the people. So then it's like, when you go see these stones that are like, okay, this is like the first connection. Nobody's been to this stone in like a hundred years. Like nobody knows who these people are. Like my cousins don't know. Like, my brother certainly doesn't know. Like, and I feel like it's like an honor to go and remember them and, you know, take like a, a bucket of soapy water and like a soft brush and like start like, you know, scrubbing like off the moss and digging people's stones out of the leaves. Like I find it like, um, you know, really moving and important to do. Huh. I'm, I'm, uh, <clears throat> I'm embarrassed to say that I, I've never done that once. <laughs> you know, frankly, it's frankly, not my my brother wouldn't do it either. So. Frankly, and when I say I'm embarrassed, I'm not really embarrassed. I mean, no, no. I mean, you're either in it or not. Here's how bad I am. I don't know. They buried my father in this massive cemetery that we don't even know where he. I mean, this it took us to drive to where they were burying him. Right, we were driving yeah. in the cemetery for 20 minutes. I do. I couldn't. I wouldn't know. I mean, it was like a needle in a haystack. Like, there's no way I would know where he was or how to find him. No way. No a lot way. of and times, they, and, if you and his you family and his his family kind of made it that po- a point of that. Oh, really? It was weird. It was weird, but at the same time, like, I remember when we were going there. I'm just like, how the fuck are we going to remember where the hell he is? Like, it was like massive it was a massive cemetery and it was like with his family and like i'd have to do some research to find out where he was yeah there's usually charts and maps um that uh that one of my favorite writers is the kid jack kerouac there that wrote like on the road he like when i went to find his cemetery in lowell mass like you had to have like all there's like streets that go through it so you had to have like the junction name and then like you know, off the website, it's like if you're standing at like J Street and like, you know, uh, Avenue 7, like on that corner and you walk like six paces, you got to look to your right and that's where the stone is. And that cemetery, it was pretty, pretty incredible to walk around. They had um, a lot of different famous people there. What's the most, just thinking off the top of your head, what are the most more remarkable cemetery gravestones you've gone to visit? Um, Jack Kerouac's was really cool. It was really moving. Um, he was a big influence on you, wasn't he? He was a big influence. I like, yeah, I showed up at his stone my first time and it was emotionally like overwhelming. Um, really? Yeah. I think it just made things real, you know? Huh. Um, but the, I think the, the, like the craziest story with all the genealogy, um, 
and maybe it's not the craziest, kind of the saddest, but the um, my like on my like Savage line, um, and uh, that that French line that came kind of from Guernsey, um, they were in upstate New York, and uh, the Plattsburgh uh, Catholic Cemetery up there. In Plattsburgh, New York, small town. It's kind of similar to like the town I live in in Rutland, like twenty thousand people. Plattsburgh's probably a little bit bigger. Um, very Catholic community. A lot of them. A lot of it was like French Canadian. Um, so you get the Catholic from that. And uh, anyways, the massive cemetery kind of on the hill, and the caretaker. I don't, I don't know what time period. Probably like nineteen eighties. Was like a heavy drinker, and uh, the town was giving him a really hard time about like his maintenance on the cemetery. So he got, he was like loaded drunk and got in a bulldozer and just bulldozed all every headstone in the cemetery over the bank <laughs> down to the river, which is awful. Kidding me? No, they're like, so we, we went there trying to find like great great, great grandparents. And did he do it on purpose or was he just drunk? Yeah, no, he was drunk and pissed off and just said you know, screw them and just bulldoze the whole entire cemetery over the hill. Can you fucking imagine? Yeah, it's crazy. So they've got like the old charts so they can approximately tell you whereabouts like your relatives may be, but it's not like going and finding a stone from 1800s. It's not there anymore. How do you punish a guy like that? What's the punishment? What's the punishment of something like that? I don't know. I mean, is, is there a punishment for it? I don't know. I mean, you got to, well, obviously fire him, number one. <laughs> That's yeah, right. Starting off of that. But then all of a sudden it's like, do you, do you criminally go after uh, him or you sue him? Or I mean, it's just I, like I don't know. a pariah of life. I mean, that is a that is such a sacrilege that just like, it's almost like, it's a strange, how do you it's, even like punish a person like that? I, I don't know. You can't it put him in jail for the rest of his life. No, it doesn't sure. make That's it. That's crazy. Yeah. It's, but at the same time, it's like, it's such a, it's such a deep sacrilege. Yeah, it's sad. It's sad on all sides. But, Jeez. Um, I don't know. I mean, I can imagine that. Like, I mean, I can imagine because you're so like you're so devoted to the stories of your family, which is amazing to me. Um, number one, I can imagine like the original shock of not knowing. I would think like if I if I came to the gravestone, I'm waiting to look at my plant hanger. It's not there. Maybe I'm thinking to myself, maybe I'm in the wrong cemetery. Like that would be the first thing I wouldn't think I couldn't dawn on right. me that a guy would just take it and steal it and say, Hey, this would be great in my garden. Yeah, but, I know. It's so weird, but that's like, cause it's like, it's going to stick out like a sore thumb. I'm hoping I bump into it like in town. You really think like, that's good? You think you're going to bump into it? What would you say? If you saw it, I, don't know. You, I would just go take it. Oh, my you name, wouldn't even, you wouldn't it's, even. Uh, my, it's signed. I've got photos of it. I mean, it's. You don't knock on the door and say, that's my thing. I'm taking it. You just grab it. I would just take it. Oh, jeez. Look at you. Unbelievable. So it makes me wonder because you're such a you're such a devote, I mean devotee and you're such a you have such a reverence towards your past. How do you look at your own present? Like do you how do you feel that you fit in with do you think about how you fit in with your family? Mm. Yeah, I'm a loser. <laughs> oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> no, that I mean, was some my, bullshit. My, don't my don't grandfather do that to was me. um Yeah, retired out of a colonel in the military thirty years and he like personally drove President Eisenhower around town and huh. um you know my my father's done incredible things. Um he was just recognized uh, uh by the World Association of Brain Injury for his like a lifetime achievement award for all the work 
he did he he went in like to syria when they did like the gassing of the kids um and worked with uh you know different children kind of all over the world um with brain injury and huh. uh yeah, he's done a lot. So I mean, I mean, I feel like I've done a lot of stuff in my life. But when I compare myself to the, to the, uh, those two men, it's like. But do you do you have you know, to? Do I'm you a have to, man. Do you have to? Oh, for fuck's sake! We just knock it off. I mean, seriously, stop it with that. I but I don't understand why you have to have. Yeah, you know, I don't understand why you, life has to be based off of what you've done compared to other people. You know, you've raised yeah, that's a good, four. That's a good point. I mean, you've raised. I, I, you know, the older I get, and you and I, you don't. I know you don't like talking about your age. We're the same age. P.S. So, <laughs> but we're so, so just don't. Everybody knows I'm about to be fifty. So guess who you're about to be fifty with me? You. You know, you're following me. I'm like a month younger. Yeah, you're a month younger, but <laughs> yeah. you're following me not too far off. So, yeah. so fucking no, don't pretend. I, I part of me. The older I get, the I've really come to the conclusion that like the most important factors in regards to me and my father was a was a winemaker and he was a successful business person and he had a certain mm-hmm. you know i don't ever compare myself to him and I, and I feel as though the most important thing a person can do is leaving the world a better place but not like in regards to i mean what your father's done is incredible and he you know he's he's he has done amazing things. And I think about my wife who's, who has, and I don't really talk about what she does, but what she's, she's saved and helped countless and countless of people. She doesn't even like to talk about it. And I think about in regards to how you leave a better life. And part of that is leaving the world a better place. It's just how you raise your kids. You know, the most important thing is it isn't about like me posting about like political issues or becoming an activist on this. The activism I need to do is make sure that I leave this place a better place by making sure my kid isn't an asshole. And she's, you know, smart and she's ready and she's prepared and she's going, she will leave a better legacy than I will. So mm-hmm. to me, I when you say I'm a loser, it's just like don't you're fucking t- saying that's the wrong. Well, guy. I mean, it, you have to like look at it from one point of view. I mean, comparing yourself to like generations that came before. Like, <laughs> but I it, guess we're, we all are different. I mean, I'm definitely more like I hate to use the word artsy, but like um, crafty. I don't know. Whatever. Well, there, that's the case. I mean, it's, there's there's a fine line between art and craft. There's a fine yeah. line between it, and it's and the, the interesting thing is something I wanted to talk to you about it with with blacksmithing, is there really is an incredibly fine line in terms of art and craft mm-hmm. in blacksmithing, and one of the things um, that fascinates me is you know I, something you and I wanted to talk about, um, but. Um, you know, a number of months ago, um, about a month ago, uh, my teacher, Ori Hoffie, had passed away. Yes. Yeah, and very sad. it would be, it's impossible to, t- I needed time. I needed time to talk about it because I felt as though um, I had gotten a message on Facebook from his family. And it wasn't directed at me, but it was the followers. He was very active on Facebook. Ori Hoffie was very active on Facebook. And his family, uh, his, maybe it was his, he has a, he had great grandchildren. He, he had been up there. He passed away after a long, um, you know, a number of years of illness. Um, and he, he passed away and I really wanted to talk about who he was because he has had such an important influence on me and my work, but also he's had an important influence on a lot of people. Um, but what's interesting about him is, 
and I think that you and I can both agree on, is he, there is such, if you look at the history of blacksmithing, there is this very, very fine line between artistic expression and the traditional craft of blacksmithing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have like Yuri Hoffi's, um, uh, whatever is the, like his teaching, like tape from when he was at CMA. Yeah, well, so 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 basically, what the there's a lot of interesting things about Ori Hoffi. One of the, I have I have uh, he and he, and he, you know the really interesting thing is is that his his students are so his students have become you know really great. Ziva Gottlieb is his like number one protege, and he had a number of proteges that kind of did his thing. But what was really interesting is Ori wasn't even his name, like Ori. URI was his his when he was born in 1935 his his name was Shinor Zalman Hoffi really yeah C S C H N I O R and what happened was he was born in Haifa 1935 his parents were um were from Russia and they came to Israel and then um when he was in kindergarten they nicknamed him Uri, U-R-I, which is which is short for Sonori, which was uh, another nickname. So it was like a nickname off a nickname off a nickname. And then he's always went by Uri. Um, grew up in Israel, uh, joined the army, uh, as everybody in Israel does. And he became, um, he left early because he had uh, physical issues. He had an enlarged heart and he had a short leg or something like that. So he was very involved in um, in farming, and he had he had some kids. He he, he met his wife uh, Nitza um, hmm. in 1957. They had three children. He ended up adopting two more children, and then he worked on this. Um, he was part of this kibbutz, which is a community uh, in Shamir Shabutz, uh, which a kibbutz, which is like a community, and he was involved with farming uh, down there. He ended up uh, going to Africa to help with the, some farming down there. And then he ended up establishing and running a rubber factory, rubber factory really? in Africa. And here's what, this is what's interesting. That's crazy. This is what's interesting about, about Hoffi. So 17 years working in a, in a, um, in a rubber as a mini plastics and rubber factory and magnet factory. Uh, he was a founder of these, fa- uh, these factories. And then he went to study art. And this is later in life. So he was really interested in stone, earth, ceramics, and iron. He began the artistic path. And I'm reading, I'm kind of like, he, there was like a, a translated history of him from one of the, uh, from one of the obituaries. So, so, huh. so some, of the, some of the wording is the translate didn't make this translation, so I got to kind of like, um, you know, uh, figure it out. So he did some art and stuff like that, and then um, it's, he was really interested. He started later in life, um, Blacksmith. He he started he started forging when he was fifty one. Fifty one, fifty two, really? fifty three. That old, huh? Here's what's interesting. Wow. So he became I mean, you know, the, he became interested in sculpture and he became interested in all this stuff and then he ended up working he ended up becoming a student of Alfred Haberman. Alfred Haberman is a famous Czech um, yeah, get his book if you don't. If people don't have it, definitely. Alfred Haberman is a famous Czech blacksmith, but really focused on sculpture. Like his sculptural direction, his artistic direction was very, very sculptural. 
similar there there's a lot of comparison to Chalita there's a lot of comparison to Samuel Yellen where there's this expressive style right it's not mm-hmm. just it's not just like very traditional here's how you forge a pair of tongs it's everything was very gestural and very you know and uh Haberman had Haberman had a hammer this Czech style hammer that they believe it's it's like I couldn't figure I couldn't find the exact quote, but they believe that his style of hammer was a shorter version of it's a short stubby hammer that was similar to looking to if you were to look at a German style hammer where it's you know a square face and then it's but right, imagine it's just kind of plain Jane but plain Jane no cheeks and it's pushed in imagine if it's pushed in so you have all that mass and stubby. So he was a student of Hori Hoff. He was a student of Alfred Haberman, and I don't know the extent of it. I do know that there was like a a falling out. Uh, but imagine being fifty three, and then they're kind of two alphas, so I can see that. But I mean, imagine imagine learning, imagine starting for, forging when you're a mature fifty year old, or probably an. Let's just face it: you turn fifty and you've run some businesses and stuff like that. Maybe you're a little arrogant. Maybe. You know, you're, you're mm-hmm. Israeli, and you're, yeah, you're definitely like setting your ways. You're fucking, you're fucking, you've already established who you are, and you're not like, you know, you're probably fucking setting your ways. So he, they, he creates. So what? What's interesting about what Hoffy did was he, he started becoming, you know, famous. God, sixties, seventies, went to his seventies, and he started traveling around, and he started teaching, and he was very, you know, he came to the United States, and he fucking set the world on fire. In the United States, he really butted heads a lot with a lot of these, you know, traditional Banna guys. He did, yeah. And a lot of it's because, and I part of me feels as though it, it all has to do with his age, like when he came into it. You know, he came into it cocksure, and you know, like you know, fired mm-hmm. up. The the interesting thing about the Uri Hoffi hammer, which apparently, so back to the what it said was, uh, Hoffi didn't consider himself an artist, but a volume artist. His expertise in publicity came due to the innovation work methods that he developed. Uh, the special tools he created for volume in order to maintain their health and make work easier. The most famous is the hammer called by its name. So a Hoffi hammer is actually um, the the... It's called the Shore Hammer, S-H-O-R-E Hammer. And really? ergonom- I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. I, didn't need it. I didn't either. So that was the original name. The ergonomic hammer makes for a healthy response to tens of thousands of hammers, lifts performed every day. So he really, I mean, and, and, and you know, it's funny because I remember when I first heard about him is when I first started at the Center for Mental Arts. And I remember it was, they were really saying, well, you know, it's about ergonomics and stuff like that. If you look at the Hoffy Hammer, and everyone calls it the Hoffy Hammer, everyone calls it the Shore Hammer called the Hoffy hammer the the difference between the check style hammer and the Hoffy hammer is the check style hammer is very plain jane there are no cheeks there it is it is hung on the hammer on the handle the way most people hang them with the wedge the Hoffy hammer is really different and i don't think people really kind of express because you can see there you can see there are companies selling the Hoffy style hammer yeah, I have like a knockoff that I got from like uh, that Centaur Forge. Well, if it's not hung with Sikaflex, it's not really a Hoffy hammer. Hmm. Do, do you know about that? So, <clears throat> most hammers, you're a hammer maker, you know that the, the, the Hoffy, you know, hammers are, you, you know, if you, you, if you have cheeks on your hammer, it has an hourglass shape on the inside of the eye. 
And what happens is you 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 carve your handle so it right. fits up in, and then it locks in and then the you bottom. Wedge it. You put a wedge, and it locks the top. So what happens is, is you end up kind of keep you you kind of conform to that hourglass shape on the inside. So 17 years working at a rubber shop, Hoffy says there's got to be a better way than using these 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 wedges. So he found this product called Sikaflex, S I K A F E L X. So when he started, so his hammers, like he started doing the production run of hammers, they are not, there's no hourglass shape in these hammers. Uh, the forged ones there is, but it doesn't even matter. So he, you would make the hammer handle and then you'd kind of make it like almost like a, a taper. There would be no, you would not, you would not cut in for a wedge at all. It would be a taper and then he would make a little kind of a corkscrew carving for the Sikaflex to hold. You would put the hammer handle flat on the side on the table, and then you would figure out your space, your spacing. So you would put the hammer handle in the eye, but like shimmed up so it would be in the middle of the eye. You would take a can of Sikaflex, fill the whole goddamn eye up with Sikaflex, cover the whole handle with Sika, uh, the, the the where you would put the hammer. Then you'd set the the hammer in. There would be like a. I'm gonna just. I'm going to just over-exaggerate and say like three-eighths to a half an inch all the way around of Sikaflex. Like underneath? So the hammer is like the, the core. The hammer handle is the core. And right. there is a half an inch at least, or three-eighths to a half an inch all the way around between the hammer and the handle. You let it hmm. set. You let, it, you let that fucking Sikaflex cure. And then afterwards, you hit it on a... a, a you hit it on a uh, like a wire wheel. Did you get off all the excess? Right. It seems sacrificial or religious. It seems like sacrilegious. It yeah. seems totally crazy. And when you talk to people, especially blacksmiths, the first thing they're going to say is, it'll never work. It'll never hold up. It'll burn up. Ah, damn it. I have the coffee <laughs> hammer they gave me, and it was, it was put together in 2001. They gave it to me. They, it, was half, it was caught, cast, put down. I use this goddamn hammer every day for five years. Every day for five years. It never, not, never happened. Not a hmm. goddamn thing. And what he said was, it, the, 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 the bound, when it's cured, and the Cicaflex is cured, it helps with, the, it helps with rebound. It helps with, it will never come off. And I, goddamn it, I've even put this, this hammerhead up against the forge. Yeah, it burns a little bit. And, you know, obviously you don't want to burn your handle. But I'm amazed at how well the Sikaflex hold. And a funny thing enough is, I had, uh, last week I was here, I was forging, and John was here and hanging out. And I was using my regular hammer that I put a wedge in, and the wedge broke. And John goes to me, he goes, like, ah, there you go, wooden wedges. That's what happens. You should have used a Sikaflex. It was amazing to me how he has ch- how he really stuck to his guns in regards to the Hoffy hammer. If you don't put, a, if you don't put the Sikaflex on, it ain't a Hoffy hammer. It can look like a Hoffy hammer, but God damn it, no one has ever, lo- you know, the hammer handle has never come loose from a Hoffy hammer. I've never seen it. The right. Only times- I wonder if it would, how it would hold up. Like in my shop, it's like, it's not heated unless I'm out there. So it can go from zero degrees to me lighting the wood stove and it being 80 degrees two hours later. And like a lot of times, like hammer, like heads and stuff will loosen up just because all the, like that wood has to adjust to those temperature but changes. It's, it, I swear it's not specialized wood. It's not stabilized wood. It's not anything 
special. It's just, I mean, he would grind these handles and out of, you know, anything, you know, out of hickory or whatever. The, the Sika Flex completely held the hammer handles to the, and it's not like it's a, it's not a little bit and it's tight. There was, like I said, it's the hammer handle is floating in the eye, floating in the eye. I'm, I'm guaranteeing you it'll never come. And he would say to me, he's like, it'll never come out. I guarantee you you'll la- it'll last longer. Your hammer will last longer. The only times it ever bro- the handles ever broke was students would hit and they would miss hit and then right, they would keep yeah. their, 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 they would keep, they'd miss hit and hit underneath the. Yeah, um, same as you would with an axe or right, something. Right. right. Yeah. But it, what it, it's amazing, what's amazing is, and what's amazing is, is what he did. What's amazing is, and I think it has to do with his age. He really burned bridges. He really and what when I first met him, I was an assistant. I was an assistant at the Center for Mental Arts, and I was surprised at how. I mean, he's a hot take machine. He would just say whatever he felt, or what someone's doing this right, someone doing that wrong. He would just name names, and he would you know he made it, this is before social media. You're talking 2005, 2006. He'd say what was on his mind. And he didn't give a fuck. Mm-hmm. And I've been in situations where you and I both know some people who I've, you know, when I they talk to me about who I know, I say, ah, I'm a student of Ori Hoffy. They've their faces turn, and they, you, know, you know, all of a sudden I'm all of a sudden I'm not as welcome as I would be. I've been in one situation where I had a meeting with a famous company, and when I met this guy who was that one of the head guys. We were talking, and I saw. Hey, uh, he was asking me about where I was. I, I worked for the CMA, and I was a um, student Ori Hoffy. The guy turned his back on me and walked away, pretending I wasn't there. We had a meeting. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm not That's kidding. That's crazy. I'm not kidding. And it was just like it was uncomfortable, but at the same time, it was like you know he had made enough enemies in the blacksmithing world that he was a very divisive guy. However, however, um. I think what's interesting to me about Ori Hoffi was his teaching style was very, very, it didn't work with a lot of people, but it was very, very good. Like if you took a class with Ori Hoffi, you were leaving with a lot of information. Um, I think that his delivery was not perfect for everybody, but Mm -hmm. um, the impact that he's had on people's lives, my life, Ziva Gottlieb for sure. Um, and others has been pretty great. Yeah, did uh, that? Remember the years ago that Jesse James thing when he got into blacksmithing and he went and worked with Yuri Hoffi? Right. Was that the same time period that he was at CMA? Yes. So, so here's what's interesting. So, and you you interviewed Jesse James. Yes. Yeah. For that. For that. For that. So that the last time I I, I can't dates I'm not good at, but I think. He came back to see him. Now I, I met. He used to come out. He used to come every, I'd say, six months. Every six months, and he would come for like two weeks. He would do a one week introductory class, and then he would do a one week either advanced class or a power hammer class. So he'd be there for two weeks, and I would. Ha- I was his assistant, and I remember. I think. I think he had come for. I had only seen him maybe four different sessions. 
And he would have been pretty old by then. But I remember the last session he had already had Jesse James. So from what I understand, and, and, and maybe you can clear up based on your interview with Jesse James, I'm under the impression, and, and this is me saying this, this is not a fact. There was some issues that he had had, and I think that there was like questions of whether or not he was anti-Semitic or something. Jesse James was anti-Semitic. And he wanted to learn blacksmithing. And somebody said, well, whatever you do, don't go to see Ori Hoffi. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and he's like, oh, he's an outcast. That's the guy for me. He went out to Israel and studied under Ori Hoffi. Now, here's what I do know. What I do know is, I don't think that Ori Hoffi was. I think he liked the fact that a famous guy was coming to see him, but that didn't stop him from riding Jesse James around that shop like a fucking mule. Yeah, he did kind of yell at him the whole time. That's his move. Funny. That's yeah. his move. Yeah. Um. What do, what do you, I mean, you, when you interviewed and that PS, if you're, if you want to listen to a great interview, Jesse and Rick Barter on the Blacksmith's Pub a number of years ago did uh, interview Jesse James and he did, he did touch upon uh, Ori Hoffi a lot. I mean, what did you, what was your, what were your thoughts based on that conversation? Um, the conversation with him was, was pretty incredible. Like his, like uh, Jesse James, like old backstory. And then the, um, getting into kind of blacksmithing kind of later in life and not being into, you know, like the traditional, like, you know, blacksmith groups and stuff, but like wanting to like go and study with somebody like Yuri. So I, I I mean, it seemed like it was a, a good fit for him to kind of like get exposed to what forging was um, through Yuri. Yeah. Well, here's the funny thing is he even said it is, you know, and that was the thing. I mean, in the traditional way, Uri Hoffi was controversial to, in the blacksmithing community. And when they said to Jesse, well, whatever you, whoever you learn from, don't go learn from Uri Hoffi. Yeah, and he's immediately he, he was just like immediately like, that's the guy I got to go learn from. If I, I need an yeah. outcast. I'm an outcast. I need an outcast. And right. when I say Uri Hoffi was an outcast, he wasn't really an outcast. I mean, he was very, very well received in Europe. He was very well received in, in the United States. I mean, he used to come only to the Center for Mental Arts, but... Um, he was well received abroad. And I think that the takeaway is, and regardless of your style, regardless of who your teachers are, if someone can inspire you to keep going and investigate more, how can that be bad? Yeah, I don't, I I mean, it may not work for some people to be like, you know, yelled at while they're trying to learn a craft but for some people it's like you might need that drill sergeant he when he yelled i mean it was just a it was like i mean i can't explain i can't explain it was he wasn't abusive right he was just very and and i think that what happened was was if he was yelling at you that many liked you and i'm not trying to you know Mm. i'm not trying i mean he yelled at me all the time i mean there one there one time where i was his assistant i'll tell you some funny stories I was his assist, so when he would come in, I'd have to do his cut list. His cut lists were so god. I mean, his cut list took over a week. I mean, he'd have two-week classes. You would leave, if you took a class from Ariafi, you were leaving with a full five-gallon bucket of steel. Now, some of the projects weren't terrific, and, and they weren't beautiful. Some of them were, like, you know, a little bit gaudy and, you know, like dog heads of, you know, snails and shit and stuff maybe that wasn't for you, but you would learn a lot. And I just remember... There was uh, one part where I was his, his assistant, and he asked me to strike for him, and I had never struck before. I never struck with a sledge at all, ever, never, not one time. We never did it. I mean, we were doing railings and stuff. We wouldn't use strikers. We would use the power hammers, and we would never use strikers. 
So John Ledford used to be his striker in the United States. He also had a guy named Boaz, and sometimes he'd bring Ziva Gottlieb with him, and John would do it. So he just turned to me assuming that I knew how to strike, and I hit the, I hit his, his, uh, I hit the piece, or I hit his, you know, uh, tool, top tool one time. And and I must have hit with this with the sledgehammer maybe four or five times. He says, "Hey, hey, you, stop! Put the hammer down!" And he he says, "Get John, get John." He threw me off. He kicked me off. Hmm. He kicked me off because he's like he knew I would, didn't know what I was doing, and I didn't. And I was. You like, think he right. would have like uh, guided you? Ah, you know what? Sometimes it's, it wasn't. The, I mean, I, I think he was afraid I was gonna hit him. <laughs> you know, frankly, <laughs> <That could be. laughs> I think. And, and you know what? And I wasn't embarrassed by it at all. I'm like, I don't know. What the fuck, <laughs> I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. Um, trying to think of some funny stories is I remember when, uh, the first time he was there, he didn't know my name, but what he did know me was, was I offered, cause I went to culinary school that I had, I was cooking for the class. So I would cook the dinners for the class. So in the middle of the classes, he would come out and, you know, take a break. I mean, he's an old guy. By the time he was there, he was in his seventies. So he would hobble and he was, you know, suffering from diabetes. Diabetes is ultimately probably what contributed to his problems. I mean, he had to have his legs. He still lived to like, what, 90 something? 86, 87. I mean, that's that's amazing. I mean, that's as good. I mean, you can't get much better than that. No, you're not gonna. I mean, I don't, I don't, I mean, my grandfather lived to like 92, but still it's like, I don't see, I mean. Well, he was vibrant in the shop all the way. That's and that's the way you want to be. Oh, of course. Yeah. So I remember he would kind of waddle out, and and then I was cooking. I remember I was cooking dinner and stuff like that, and he would say, "Hey, you cook." He called me the cook for for the first the first year. Okay, hey, cook. Show me your sharpest knife. And this is before I was a knife maker, and I just pulled out a knife, and he goes, and he put he puts his finger on it, and he goes, "This is not sharp enough." And then he took a tomato, and then he cut this tomato, and he goes. You need to make the sh- the knife sharp, so sharp that the t- tomato cuts itself out of fear. <laughs> it was just a funny line. It was just like it, the, the to- it should be so sharp that tomato's scared and it should just automatically slice itself. But what the funny thing is, so he'd sit next to me while I was cooking, and he would just say, "And he said, what does your na- what does you cook? What is your name?" And I would say, <laughs> "My name is Jeff," and he started laughing. And I, I couldn't understand. I'd never seen him laugh like that. And I said, what are you laughing at? He goes, Jifa. Jifa is funny. And I said, well, he says, what kind of parents name their kids Jifa? I said, what the f-? I said, it's not Jifa. I said, what's Jifa? It's Jeff. What's Jifa? And he goes, in Hebrew, Jifa means sewage. But not just any sewage. It's the best sewage. It's the <laughs> sewage that flows on the top of the water. And he just started right. calling me. And he just thought, it was, he, thought my, he thought my parents named me garbage. You know, so... He, we ended up striking up quite a relationship, and he was very uh, he was very attuned to jokes. He told horrible jokes all the time, and we spent a lot of good times together. We had a lot of fun. We had a lot of laughs. I was I had a different relationship with him because I wasn't re- I was a student, and I was fortunate enough to take his classes. But like I was his assistant, so he'd kind of goof around with me and John a lot. And we ended up getting a. And I remember when you interviewed Jesse James. You said you were saying, you know, Jeff Fader. We used to say that uh, he would tell jokes, and you. I remember when in that interview, Jesse said, "Yeah, I don't remember telling any jokes." But I mean, he just didn't have that relationship. No, no. But I mean, they did. I think he like he saw him quite a few different times. He was very Jesse was very loyal to Hoffy, and I remember yes. he used to post a lot about him, and they did. A, 
there's a video i think they did a uh like a documentary jesse james goes to israel or i don't know what it was but uh, yeah it was something you can't find it anymore probably on youtube probably on youtube yeah maybe but i i just remember throughout the years he was very he was very good on facebook i i remember uh he was very active with his students on facebook and then he also had developed a hammer. I remember reaching out to him a couple of years ago talking about his hand. I was talking to a lot of blacksmiths about hammers, different kind of hammers. And he said to me that his forge hammers are great, but nothing compared to his cast hammer. So he started casting the Hoffy hammer or the shore hammer. Um, and when I say casting, I don't think it was cast poured cast. I think they were like die forge or something like that. I'm not a hundred percent sure. And he would say to me that there was nothing more accurate than the cast hammers. And I have two of them. I have one that he had made in 2001. And I, he was involved with this is a German company called Anglais, uh, hmm. who still has some of his stuff. I'm not sure exactly how much. But he, he was telling me that those cast hammers were by far the superior hammer, even more superior than the forged ones that he made. And I definitely remember talking to a lot of people who would be put their noses up to it and just say, "Oh, it's a cat. It's a factory made hammer. How good could it be? Fucking hammers are dynamite, you know." Um, and uh, talking to him, you know, through social media, I never got a chance to interview him, and a lot of it was because he was deaf as a doornail. And I, you know, I, I personally believe he liked that being deaf because I think that he didn't really want to hear. What anybody else had to say, so I think that he kind of turned down the <laughs> turned down his uh, his, uh, his 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 earpieces every so often. But um, I chatted with him up until I guess January, and we were kind of sending messages. The last kind of talk, kind of conversation we had a number of years ago, I think three or four years ago, I I made the decision. Um, John Ledford had had a cast one of his forged hammers, and I really wanted to get a couple of his forged forged hammers just out of nostalgia. So I'd sent Ori a message. I was like, really, I really want one of your forged hammers. Are you still making them? And at this time, he's in this, you know, probably 84, 85. He's like, yeah, I'm still making them. And he just said, just send me some, you know, he gave me his address and I sent him some money. And and then I didn't hear from him for a while. And I remember hmm. he he wrote me a message saying, I've been in the hospital. I'm really sorry that I haven't been able to finish your hammer, but don't worry, I'll get it. So he had had a skin infection. One of the things that was... Um, one of the things that he had, a, his diabetes was bad. Like he couldn't, I remember back, you know, we're talking 15 years ago. He couldn't feel his feet to the point where he was yeah, forging something and a piece of hot steel went down in his boot. And he says, you got a guy's got to take my shoe off because I don't know if my foot's burning or not. Like he couldn't tell, like he had no feeling in his feet. So like if something's burning, so he ended up sticking his whole foot in the, in the quench bucket. He's just like, I don't, I, there's no way for me to know if my foot's burning. I can't feel anything. So he he got out of the hospital and then he forged me uh, a couple hammers and then he sent me a hammer and he wrote me he says I'm really sorry it took so long and he says I wanted to give you this uh, rounding hammer because I he says you're a really good you're a really good knifer he doesn't have the word bladesmith he called me a knifer mm-hmm. and it was really cool having that and then not too long after that they took his leg off and I'd sent him a message when they took his leg off and he was trying to get his life. He was just like, I'm in the hospital. They took my leg off. I don't give a fuck. I can't feel it anyway. I'm going to get back to the shop. And he said to me, I want you to come to the kibbutz and teach a blacksmithing, a bladesmithing class. And the last time, and then after that, I said to him, like, listen, just don't make plans. Just get your 
get squared away, get your get back into your health, get back to your home, get back to your wife. And it just never materialized. And I thought felt like, you know, I didn't really push the matter just because it's just like, you know what? Guy's in his eighties, he's lost his leg, and I'm not making you know, buying plane tickets now. It's just and right. he kept going. He figured out how to uh, get his forge and his hammers and his all his tools so he could be on a swivel chair. So he was on a swivel chair, and all he had to do is swivel around. So he started. He kept forging hammers. <clears throat> he kept forging parts for uh, Anglais, the company that he was working with, making tongs. And he 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 was really being very vibrant in in regards to that. And then. Well, about a year ago, his wife passed away. Um, his wife passed away, and it was very, you know, been known her since, you know, the 50s. He'd never even been married to her since the 50s. And that was the part where I was like, all right, this is, you know, usually what happens is, you know, they die of a broken heart. And um, I think it was very, obviously, very, obviously, very upsetting to him. And, you know, as, you know, kept going and kept working and, having students come and making hammers and keeping the thing alive. And you just, you know, after all these years, years of learning and teaching and being part of a beautiful kibbutz and community, he just, you know, he passed away. And it was very sad for me. Um, it was very sad for a lot of his students. And um, I, I just thought I would read part of, uh, if you don't mind, no, uh, go. You're a sentimental guy. I wanted to read uh, what uh, his 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 student Ziva Gottlieb is just the perfect the perfect guy to carry on his legacy, and, I'll, and I'm going to read part of uh, what he wrote uh, in regards to his student. And uh, uh, P.S. Uh, Ziva Gottlieb goes to see uh, goes to see Bob Menard. He goes to he's very involved. Yeah, he, with, he's de demonstrating right now at he, the uh, California. Zivik's uh, doing everything everything to keep the keep it alive in his own way. I just wanted to read what uh, Zivik had wrote uh, about finding out about his his student his Oriad. Um, this is from Zivik. With great sadness, we've parted from Uri Hoffi today, a mentor, a father when needed, a teacher for life, and a dear friend. He lived his own way, and he ended it the way he decided in his bed with his loved ones around him. This charismatic yet difficult man, a mentor to his core, was a fierce, fearless leader. He was an innovator to everything he did, invented and reinvented. He had an amazing ability to explain and simplify any complex issue in simple terms understood by anyone. Before his passing, he ordered me to keep passing the knowledge I'd gained from him in our over 30 years of acquaintance. Dear Hoffy, I promise to keep passing the knowledge of the Hoffy method in my own way, as you loved it, and will always be in my you'll always be in my heart, and I will always miss you. Rest in peace, friend. Um, it was pretty. That was a pretty beautiful statement. But then he he wrote another thing recently, and I just wanted to read this. Uh, I'm going to read parts of it. Um. So this is, once again, this is Eva Gottlieb. I was asked by a grieving family to express the condolences on this great loss on behalf of the Israeli blacksmiths community and the international community from all of the world. Our hearts are with you in your grief. Hoffi, your deep resounding voice will forever echo our ear, echo in our ears. You knew how to co simplify complex things. You were a phoenix, charismatic, sharp, witty, a performer, tough and soft, soft-hearted alike. You were an innovator, uh, inventor, thirsty for challenges, challenging others, and a people's person, a teacher, a mentor, a pathfinder. You despised ignorance and you fought for justice. 
And then he, he wrote about other things. Uh, I'm just going to, uh, I'll leave some of that out. But uh, I thank you for allowing me to say goodbye. I promise to keep passing on the knowledge as you asked me to on your deathbed. My friend, you were already missed. Hoffy, yesterday you finally put that hammer on the anvil. So it was uh, very moving, you know. It was yeah, very absolutely. moving. And, uh, you know, it took me a long time to do this, and I really wanted to do it with you, uh, have this episode, and just kind of remember him, only because, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think for, for me, um, what you've represented to me has been this very beautiful, um, a very beautiful, you have a very beautiful celebration of the facts and the history. And I couldn't think of anybody else to kind of talk about Hoffy except for you. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Um, I think, you know, I have a romantic view on life, but I was just kind of um, looking back through Jesse James' feed and um, he kind of, he said um, it was a very sad day um, when the anvil stops ringing and the forge um, goes out for the final time. I just received uh, the news from Israel that my good friend, uh, mentor, Yuri Hoffy passed away. Yuri is such an amazing man. He, dedicated his life to the hammer and the anvil and heat, teaching as many people all over the world. Um, and uh, at the same time operating his own simple blacksmith shop uh, in Israel. Uh, the time I spent there changed my life, uh, opened my eyes to new possibilities for my work, and gave me a lifelong friend. Um, I'm sure I sure miss the uh, loud, boisterous voice on the phone. Um, I know myself and many others will keep his name and teaching alive for generations to come. Uh, he will be missed for sure. So that was what Jesse James said about him. Well, I, with that said, I mean, this is getting on the sad side. What I would like yeah. to do is read a couple of his jokes. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> this is and, and feel free to laugh and do me a favor. Yeah. If they suck, laugh harder. Because yeah, I mean, you got to lighten it up. <laughs> here's the funny thing about Hoffy. He fucking, he was, you know, the hardest part about being funny is I cannot tell a street joke. A street joke is set up punchline, you know? Like you right. hear that, you know, I, I fucking suck at him. I mean, I can be funny on the cuff, but I can't, I can't. So he used to do, um, I remember the first joke he told me, he, the first joke he told me in the in the middle of class was one that is a fucking classic. He, um, and he would tell these totally inappropriate jokes at inopportune in times. And one of the great ones, he'd do, he'd do them in class and be like, God damn it, this fucking guy's teaching. This guy's teaching his class and he's fucking, he's like singing out these jokes. It's pretty amazing. So the first joke is, I'm, when I do the jokes, I'll do them in his voice. He goes, hey, hey, what do you call a woman in church and a woman in the bathtub? And then you'd say, well, I don't know. Hoffy, what, <laughs> what do you call him? And he goes, one is a, is a woman with a soul full of hope. The other is a woman with a hole full of soap. <laughs> I mean, that's fucking, oh, that's fucking hilarious. And here's another one. So, so I would text with him, and I, and I, I remember texting him. Um, I texted him, and he would, he would send me. He referred to me as his fi- – uh, I, I wrote to him. He told me some horrible jokes, and I, I wrote, wrote to him, you know, you got to change up the series. Some of these jokes are a little bit intense. And he goes, you are my mentor. And then he would say, "I have new jokes, or I have new jokes for you." And it was him; it wasn't somebody from because he write him. Uh, uh, he write him phonetically, and he goes, "Oh, he says." Uh, I after he got his leg chopped off, I said, "I hope you feel better." He's like, "I'm feeling really good." And he goes, "An old people were playing golf, and they did not see where the ball fell." 
they found an old man with good eyes, and he asked them, did you see the where the ball fell? And, he, and the guy says, yes, I did, but I don't remember where it went. <laughs> so like, there's no bullshit jokes like that. But here's another one. Um, uh, here's a simple joke. A woman eats breakfast with her husband. And she says to herself, what a good for nothing I have at home. She's looking at her husband with hatred. She went to her day work and met this very young, nice man. And all day long, she said to herself, what garbage I have at home. And in the evening, while having supper with her husband, her husband asked, dear, how is your day? And the woman answered, all day I was thinking of you. <laughs> This is kind of fucking awesome. And I mean, just these fucking crazy jokes. I have another one here that's just like fucking bananas. Um, I have a couple that are a little bit too much, but uh, they're my favorite one is, and I, I have them. I have them. Uh, yeah, one about women having, you know, guys going to sex doctors is a good one. But uh, he goes, he goes, here's a, a 50 year old lady came to the husband and asked him, I am, am I pretty? And the man says, yes. And she says, I read in the paper, there's a new pill that if you take it, I will be as beautiful as I was, uh, I was, I was five years ago. Uh, no, I would be. It, it, she's a fifty-year-old man, as I was twenty-five years ago. So he takes. She, if she takes the pill, she'll be twenty-five years. <laughs> look, twenty-five years younger. And he goes, "How much is the pill?" And she says, "It's it's fifty thousand dollars." So he's intently wrote her a check for a hundred thousand dollars, and she says, "Why did you give me so much money?" And he's the husband says, "So you can buy two and disappear from my life." Oh my god! That's, awful. <laughs> That's fucking fucking hilarious. Um, and then there's another one in here. I gotta, I gotta fucking give. I gotta give it to you. Um, this, one, this one's my favorite. This is a stuttering joke, but you have to understand it. So just listen. Let's, let's, this is from, and he writing it. He's writing it with the stutter in it. He's writing it. A fellow came to the doctor and he says, "I, I am stuttering. What, what can I do?" And the doctor says, "Take your trousers down." <laughs> the guy says, well, what the hell is this connection to taking out my trousers? And he said, and he saw, and he took his trousers down and the doctor wanted to see uh, how he noticed that the penis, his penis spelled P-I-N-N-A-S <laughs> was a giant. He had a giant penis. And then the doctor says, uh, I saw, so I see the super size of your penis, and the reason is you have to cut it in half, and you, your stutter will be gone. Okay, said the man, and he came home to a very happy wife, and he says, "You don't," and the wife says, "You don't stutter anymore," and she says, he, "She says, but then she pulls his pants down, and he says, half a dick, you know." So he goes, and the wife says, well, "I don't care that you stutter. I need the whole, I need the whole penis." I'm, 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 I'm trying to figure, fix this up a little bit. I don't need the whole penis. So he goes back to the doctor, and the doctor says, "I need you to reverse the operation." The doctor says, "Ah, it is impossible." So the joke is, he went to the doctor, cut his dick off, and he sewed the dick back on his own doctor's penis. So, oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> That's the uh, You know what? I don't uh, give a shit. So I called him. My, my, I, I referred to him as my favorite terrible comedian. And he, and he mm. says, and he would just had hundreds of them. He had hundreds of them. And uh, he wrote, I definitely, when, I, when he sent me the knife, the hammer, he wrote, I got the payment. Remember. He says, "I." He said to me, "I always remember you as a good help, a good helper, 
and a victim of my bad jokes. Jokes yeah, spelling J O A C K S. That's funny. So, God bless you, Uri Hoffy, and um, you know, uh, listen. Everyone had different relationships with him, and and I what what he meant to me was he he made he made me he made me want to learn more, and then I obviously. You know, some of the things I've taken with him, some of the things I haven't taken with him, but like he gave me um, the land, the, you know, the takeoff, taking off from this beautiful airstrip to a wonderful world of blacksmithing. So I'm going to be forever in his debt and I'm going to always remember the good times we had. Does that sound oh, there good? You go. Yeah, that's good. I'm much better than that. Any, anything else you want to add or, I mean, it can't get much better than that, right? No. Um... No, I think we're good. All right, guys. Well, we didn't get to, you know, we didn't get to, you were going to talk about the, um, let's just talk about uh, your, um, the scrapyard. Oh, right. Yeah, I forgot about let's that. Let's get the scrapyard and then uh, we'll see what's up. Uh, yeah, I like, I feel very privileged because of, um, like my local scrapyard, Max Steel. Um, they sold new steel and, and like, and they had 15 acres of scrap. Um, the original yard was like a stone's throw from me. Um, I don't know if I've talked about it before, but it's uh, it was like right around the corner for me, but they moved it in like the 1950s. So um, this, uh, the original owner was Dave uh, Mack, who was, um, he was a Holocaust survivor. He, he went into, I can't think of the camp, and he was married at the time, and his child and his wife were both killed there. And his wife, um, his uh, the wife that he married in America um, was in Auschwitz, and like she was married and had a child that were both killed too. Oh. Um, but the local um, Jewish temple in town uh, adopted a bunch of families after the Holocaust. I think like 1949 ish. Um, so they both came from Poland into my town of Rutland, Vermont. And um, Dave started, I mean, he lived like almost across the street, um, driving around and collecting like steel and um, and selling scrap and taking cars. And then he kind of outgrew the property. So he bought um, the old Clark farm, like on North Main Street, like leaving Rutland, going towards Burlington. And uh, so it was 15 acres and uh, they've been you know, in business, uh, since then. And, um, it was his, his son, um, Irv or everybody called him Israel, um, took over. He's like my father's generation. And then, um, his son, Josh, who was my age that I went to school with and rolled, rode skateboards with it as a kid. Um, he ran kind of like the scrapyard, but you know, it was the greatest place on earth to me. I mean, no scrapyards let you go in and roam around. Right. You know, Josh would call me on like a Tuesday morning and say, "Like, you better get down here because like somebody just scrapped like a bunch of jackhammer bits, and I threw them, and it's like near you know pile sixteen. Like, go out there, and he goes, you got to come fast before they're buried.' Um, but yeah, I could go out there and get whatever I want, and for the most part, you know, I would just throw it in the back of my truck and ask Josh what he needed for it, and half the time he would just say, "Get the hell out of here! I never saw it." And uh, you know, I mean, welding benches like like that would get scrapped by like local, you know, um, I don't know, factories and like different places, uh, just tons and tons of like 
crazy stuff like gas pumps and um you know like there was he had like this past summer um the salem artwork um they had he bought him a camper and like a group of people lived in the camper in the scrapyard all summer and made kind of like repurposed like scrap huh. iron like sculptures and then they did a show and um really neat story like great family um i got all my 4140 from there because it was like ge would buy like huge lengths of 4140 and then they the drops and stuff um that got left behind i would get you know deals on there uh, but they're like recently uh decided to close the close up so it's been like tragic for like all of us like blacksmith and fabricators everybody around there have been kind of like uh we hung out there and just kept going back to the scrapyard every day and like trying to get stuff out and i got a bunch of steel i was like at the time i went in there and josh was just like you know you got to get your order in it's gonna go fast i'm like like i'm like right now like i just ordered steel and i was like i don't like i don't really have the like the money to like put in a huge order for steel um he's like just do it and it was like so i put in my order for like odd size stuff stuff i can't get other places and uh you know it he delivered it and uh i never saw a bill you know so now i'm gonna have to fight with him about paying the money for it so is there a reason why they're closing or is this enough it's well his father is um 77 78 he's due to retire right and josh doesn't josh was always kind of like didn't want to be in the building right and uh in like the new steel aspect of it he didn't want to be on the phone right he liked being in the scrapyard he liked helping out like the, all the local artists and stuff and um i don't know he's josh is he's a couple years older than me so he's like 51 um He's done it his whole life. I think he's ready to, he didn't want to take it on on his own. Um, You know, he said his father's like knowledge is irreplaceable. And um, so they're going to close it down for a period. He might, you know, maybe he'll sell it to one of the other big, you know, uh, steel places in Vermont. Um, But it's, uh, I don't know, for for me, it's been devastating. Like, I'm just been like so upset because I don't know. Like I don't get, I don't buy like tons and tons of steel. And if like if I need like a, you know, a piece of quarter inch that's like two by two plate, I could just go there and buy like a, like a small piece. There's tons of drops everywhere. I can go and fish around in the yard and find stuff, or in the you know in the like sheet metal building. But it sounds whatever. like But it sounds like it's more about the relationship you've had with Josh. It is, yeah, yeah, extremely, um, you know, close with him and his wife. Is it's not replaceable. Uh, it's just it's it's so upsetting. Like I mean, I've seen like they've had drop hammers come in there, scrap. They've had like crazy machinery, and generally, I'm always one of the first calls to go down and see what you know has come in. Um, so it's it's devastating because there's going to be no more. There's no places that don't they can't like afford the liability of letting people into right, their scrapyards right, anymore. Right. You know. Right, right. Um even like Stephen Bronstein, um, who does all like the pipe sculptures uh and stuff in northern Vermont, he was saying that like when his local scrapyard stopped letting him buy all the um all the drops of pipe and stuff people would buy. He goes, Now I have to buy all new lengths of pipe right. to do these sculptures out of he goes, It's crazy. 
because he's like, all I ever really needed was just like the, the pile of stuff they were going to get rid of. This is the problem with business now. You know, one yeah. of the things that's going to be the future of businesses in general <clears throat> isn't going to be convenience. It's going to be based off of local relationships. I know. And that's yeah. going to be most likely the one difference between automation and how we look at businesses and how we also look at customer service. And part of that is creating these kind of relationships that are very like, you know, you know, based off of people that, you know, you know? Yeah. I mean, I feel like my whole world, like in, you know, little Rutland, Vermont is like, I have a lot of like really close relationships with all the, you know, local metal people around me and people otherwise, um, you know, even the new mayor of the city has been in my blacksmith shop. Like it's, you know, it's, that's the one, one thing I really like, like about being here in this community is, uh, you know, having that, that closeness, um, you know, like I, I, it's just a, I mean, to carry on about it, but it's been like, uh, traumatic for, uh, for, for me to lose that scrap here. And there's no way you'd ever consider getting involved with it. Yeah, I would. Yeah. I thought about it a little bit. I think it's too much for me. I mean, I'm definitely a dumpster diver, so I would, I would love like the seeing all the stuff coming in and out. I don't know. I, you should think about it. Maybe you should yeah. think about it. You I've know, thought about it a little bit. You know, maybe get sure. yourself some, get yourself a consortium of dudes. Maybe get some like, you know, artist companies to, you know, help you get involved. You never know. Yeah, you, you never you know. Could def definitely do stuff. I mean, you were a bookstore owner. It's not much different than a scrapyard. Well, I mean, bookstores and scrapyards are kind of the it's same pretty, thing. It's a big deal. I mean, just as Magnet uh, Train is like a $500,000 machine. Yeah, what do they need to run that place? You know, you kick, you kick your dad a little bit of money, you keep the ball rolling. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You never yeah, know. I don't, I don't know. Well, and I'm I kinda, sorry to hear it. I, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's sad. Wish, so let's end on a positive note. Well, let's end on a positive You know what? Things are going to get better. The springtime, yeah. springtime's coming. You're going down to the Center for Metal Arts. Yeah, you're gonna, you're gonna have a great time with all those great people, and you're gonna. Have, we had a great time the last time, and uh, we all had, we had drinks at the rectory, and Pat nice. and I went, and we, uh, we hung out with the with the students at the rectory, and that was fun, and it was just a lot. I, I, I would highly suggest. I mean, if you're listening to this and you're thinking to yourself. Can I get better at what I'm doing? What you got to do is you got to go down to the Center for Metal Arts. You got to support the CMA. You got to, regardless, you go down to, they're going to have their, the Cambria Iron Conference in September. You should definitely go to that. There are classes available. Go sign up the newsletter at the Center for Metal Arts .org. Uh, I have a couple of available slots in the September class, the Friction Volter class. It's a lot of fun. You knife maker, not a knife maker. You don't for my classes, for Jesse's classes, you don't need any experience. Jesse and I are the guys who kick the door in and hold the door open for people. We're not the ones you don't need to know how to do anything. We're gonna get we'll get you Jesse and I will get you cleared up. We're the ones who are trying to give you a good time to so make you keep going back. So for sure, for sure, for sure. Go follow Center for Metal Arts on Instagram. Go follow Center for Metal Arts on Facebook. Go to centerformetalarts.org and get on the newsletter. There are exciting classes available, 
and there are really exciting classes coming up for 2024 and Jesse and I will both be there and Carrie will be there too. If you take a class with Jesse and Carrie, they are fantastic. They are wonderful people. Congratulations to Carrie, the only politician worth the damn as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Congratulations all new once again reelected alderman in Rutland. Congratulations to Carrie. Uh, number two is on a positive note. Congratulations to our friend Cliff Dufton, right? Mm-hmm. Cliff Dufton yes. and his girlfriend uh, Katie gave had a baby, so he's got a new daughter. Cliff Dufton is a new daughter, so we want to send our best love to C.J. Dufton, Cliff Dufton, our boy, the 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 main man, the wizard. He got a, he's mm-hmm. got a new project to work on. He's gonna be a dad. So he is a dad, so that's great news. Um, and we're very happy for them. And, uh, I'm always happy to talk to you, Jesse. Yeah, it was great talking with you. Always, always guys go follow Jesse on Instagram. Uh, that's Jesse Savage Blacksmith on Instagram. Uh, you know, he's nowhere. Out. He, he's on Facebook. He's on Twitter a little bit. He's on Twitter a little, a little bit, bit, but a little bit. that's a strange place to be. If you're a creative artist person, if you're not, if you don't have much to say, it's a weird place to be. Trust me. Yeah. I don't really understand it. But... I don't either really be honest <laughs> yeah. with you, but, uh, at the same time I'm with you go follow Jesse and Carrie, uh, go follow center for metal arts, go follow me fader knives on uh, fader knives or go follow full blast podcast on Instagram. Uh, I have an Instagram page, full blast podcast. Uh, that's where I kind of announce what's going on. Uh, and also, uh, tell you about the sponsors we have. We've got new sponsors coming in. And um, once again, thanks for listening, everybody. Jesse, thank you once again. Yeah, thank you for having me on. You're the man, as always. All right, we'll see you next week, everybody. This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Makers.